Well, I hope you do have your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to continue and uh, trust that those who are caring for the situation are wise and good, and uh, we'll move forward. We're having trouble with our projector this morning, as is clear. Some of you will be happy to know. Uh, it's overheating is the problem we're having with it today. I'm not sure why. Uh, but um, as part of our renovation and expansion plan, one of our hopes is to replace that with something brighter and better. It's over 10 years old, which means it's ancient as far as technology goes. So uh, we hope that if we can replace it with something brighter, it will be uh, easier when our outreach partners come and show us slides, we'll be able to see them. So uh, some of you think that our outreach partners, all they do is service ministry at night because all their pictures are so dark, but it actually is our projector. So hopefully we'll fix that and uh, we'll try to work on this this week. Well, challenging day. Uh, We're going to read 1 John 4 in just a couple minutes, but I want to start by telling you something that Ross Douthat said this week. Ross Douthat is a columnist for the New York Times, and here is something that he said. When your grift... I'll have to read this twice because he uses some unusual words. When your grift has run out of marks in every other precinct of conservatism, the religious conservatives are still willing to be played. I'll read that again. When your grift has run out of marks in every other precinct of conservatism, the religious conservatives are still willing to be played. That is, what he's saying here is, when no one else will listen to you, religious conservatives are still willing to let you dupe them. Ross Douthat is both a conservative and he is a religious one, but here's what he says about us, that we're easily dupable, that we're easily willing to be played. That stings. And I wonder if that's true. Well, here's, here's why Ross Douthat wrote this. I'm going to give you some names that you may or may not know. I'll have to tell you this story, but it will make sense, so hang on for just a minute. Do you know the name Milo Yiannopoulos? Uh, some of you probably do. The rest of you have real lives that you lead. Uh, Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos is a British political commentator. He's an author. He's witty, he's droll, he's cruel, and he's crude. Uh, he describes himself as a cultural libertarian. Uh, he, when, when he, for a couple of years, he was on a lot of television talk shows, and if you wanted somebody to say something that would be shocking and get viewers about Islam or atheism or feminism or social justice or political correctness, Milo was your man. Uh, he's British. His main exposure to the United States came through his uh, publication on Breitbart News, that website, and that seems to be when he came to the United States and started publishing there is when he started his relationships with the alt-right, with neo-Nazis in the United States. Now, in 2016, Milo Yiannopoulos was a name that uh, you might recognize because he was on the news a lot because of his ardent support for Donald Trump. That was also the year that he was permanently banned from Twitter for inciting harassment of comedian Leslie Jones. And then in February 2017, there was an opponent who released a video in which Yiannopoulos uh, advocated a particular form of sexual immorality, one that was so abhorrent that uh, that his publisher canceled his contract to write his autobiography and he was disinvited from a political um, conservative conference he, he was uh, uh, banned. He kind of disappeared from the cable shows. But last week, Eric Metaxas hosted him on his radio show. Do you know the name Eric Metaxas? 
Eric Metaxas wrote uh, fine biographies of um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and William Wilberforce. He's a great writer. He's a good, engaging speaker. I first heard uh, Eric Metaxas several years ago uh, when he spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast. Um, and, and Eric Metaxas, in front of the nation's political elite, defended religious freedom, and he spoke about the sanctity of life, and he talked about the centrality of the cross of Christ. It was uh, a wonderful, uh, 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 telling representation of what we believe as, as followers of, of Jesus. And so, here we go, hearing Milo Yiannopoulos on Eric Metaxas' radio show, Ross Delphit said, when your grift has run out of marks in every other precinct of conservatism, when no one else will listen to you, the religious conservatives are still willing to be played. Is that really true? Ross Douthat isn't trying to take cheap shots at anybody. Are we really that gullible? About 20 years ago, someone with more experience in the industry than I had told me that uh, it was well known in the music world that if you couldn't make it in the secular market, if your music wouldn't sell, you just need to start writing Christian songs because we'll listen to and buy anything. Hmm. Maybe we have a problem. Here's a passage that addresses it. All right? 1 John 4, 1 to 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ is in, is, has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and you have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We're from God. We're from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So the title that I've given to this sermon this morning is printed at the top of the note sheet. It's called, this says, uh, Don't Be Gullible. Don't Be Gullible. If Ross Douthat is correct, let's move in a different direction for being easily played. Uh, there are two injunctions that I want to give you that come from this pa passage. First of all, we're going to talk about uh, how we need to listen carefully. And secondly, we're going to talk about watching closely. So listen carefully and watch closely. Let's think about one, them one at a time. First, listen carefully. So the last paragraph that begins, or the, 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 the verse that comes right before what we read this morning, we read it last week, at the end of chapter 3, we end by the Spirit. Did you notice that? In, in chapter 3, verse 24, maybe you remember from last week, it says, and this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. Well, the next question is obvious, right? Okay, so we know that we're genuinely His by the Spirit. Well, the question is, how do we recognize the Spirit? What does the Spirit do? Or um, There's a lot of people who claim to be spiritual, claim to be inspired by the Spirit of God. How do we tell who's genuine, who we should really listen to? John says, don't believe every spirit, test them. Now think with me for a minute about why John would issue this command. What would be going on that John would need to say this? Maybe, on the one hand, John is thinking about the people who were in the church but had left that congregation and were now espousing different ideas 
a, a different understanding of what it means to be a spiritual person. And John is warning uh, his readers about that splinter group, maybe. Maybe this warning is necessary because these believers, like all believers should, desire to grow as a follower of, of, of Jesus. Uh, and so they're opening to hear from they're open to hear from all kinds of different people. I want to grow as a follower of Jesus, so can you help me? Are there, can you help me follow him better? Do you have any ideas about how to conquer my sin? Do you have ways in which I can be better Christians? A better Christian? So we want help. So we're willing to listen to people. Maybe John is thinking about the fact that we who are followers of Jesus believe in redemption. We believe that everybody and anybody can be rescued, that God calls all people to himself. So we believe that God can rescue anybody. And that's true. But but John says that that doesn't mean that you should give them a platform. Everybody can can come into the family of God, but not everybody should be given a microphone. So, So he says, be careful. Test. There are a lot of false prophets out there. Now, we should think about this even, even a little bit more. In, in verse 1, the command, actually the whole passage, the command that he gives here is a command that he gives to all of us. This is all of our responsibilities. No one is exempt from this. We should all be listening carefully. It's not reserved just for the elders or just for the select group. This is the calling of everyone who is a follower of Jesus. All of you, all of you this morning, don't believe every false teacher. Don't believe every teacher. Test them. And the second thing that we should think even before we move on is that this, uh, this command, this command to, to be ruthless in, in a sense, is, does not contradict what John says in the rest of the book about love. John writes about love a lot. We spent the last two weeks talking about love and then we're going to spend the next two weeks talking about love. In fact, look at verse 7 of chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. He writes that just after he wrote these paragraphs about testing carefully. Biblical love does not contradict this idea of discernment. And and he is rigorous here. That word test, it's a good word. Ancient writers used to use that word test to talk about their money. So in, um, well, for a long time in our country, not now, but in the ancient world, the value of coins was determined by actually what was in the coin. So a um, shekel, a gold shekel or a silver shekel was worth what it was because of the actual gold and the actual silver in it. So it was very important that the coins that were presented were of the right size, that they, that they actually had that much silver and gold in them. And it was also important to make sure that it was actually silver and gold in them and not some other metal. So the the coins had to be tested. Examine them. See if they're real. You had to test it. But that's not what love does, right? Love doesn't test like that. Love isn't judgmental. Love isn't discriminating. It's welcoming and accepting and affirming that's the way we talk about love, but that's not the way the Bible talks about love. In fact, what's interesting, look at Philippians chapter 1. I wrote this verse down. Paul prayed for the Philippians. And notice what he said. He prayed that their love would grow in discernment. Look, 
And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Love, you grow in love, you'll grow in discernment. Those things work together. Love and discernment, they, they actually match one another. It does test. Love does discern. Love does discriminate. I'm using that word. Not along racial lines. That's not what I'm talking about. But uh, love is judgmental in that sense. Now, you know that's true. One of my cousins, one of my cousins is a trainer by trade, a physical trainer, and, and he spends a lot of time lifting weights. His goal is to get big. Uh, and, and he works really hard at it. And uh, he's on social media a lot because um, he's trying to develop a network of friends, and they all like to work out. And you know what? Those are, that's a discriminating group of people. They are uh, rigorous about testing their diets. Are they getting enough protein? Are they having too, much, too many carbs? Where, where are their macros? And how do they figure out what their macros are? So they're very... And, and, and they're vigilant about their form when they lift. Every exercise has to be done very precisely with, with discernment and with judgment. And do you know why this group is so discerning? Why they're so discriminating? Why they're so judgmental? Because they love their bodies. Not necessarily in a terrible way, but, but they love the, the fruit of their effort. I know they love their bodies because they post pictures of their biceps all the time. <laughs> look at my broad bag, look at what my biceps, look what my macro did here, right? Am I, am I working out? Look at the fruit of my labor. They love what they're doing, they love the fruit of their labor, and so they're very discriminating, very discerning. Or think about a young mother at the grocery store. Right? There she is. She's at the grocery store. She's there to buy food to feed her family. And she's very careful about what she buys. There's two types of loving discernment at the grocery store. Some parents focus on what their kids like to eat, so they buy the flavor of Pop-Tarts their kids like, and they leave the flavor of Pop-Tarts that their kids don't like. Right? Come to the Pop-Tart aisle. Where's the strawberry? Because we're not bringing home cherry. I made that mistake once. Right? Okay, there's a discernment. And then sometimes... Parents focus on what's good for their kids, so they're never in the Pop-Tart aisle. They buy kale and other horrible things like that, right? Okay? Love is discriminating. Love is discerning. Love tests. It doesn't accept every teacher. It doesn't accept every lesson, every teaching, every claim to spiritual revelation. It is not loving to affirm people when their message doesn't measure up. So, so John is saying to us, listen carefully, and that does, not, that does not contradict what he's talking about when he writes about love in the rest of his book. Now, we have to move past verse 1. We haven't even made it past verse 1. But before we do that, this is not the only place in the Bible where we're told to have this sort of judgmentalism, this sort of make this sort of discern, discerning decisions. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. I don't think that means you can't wear wool sweaters. But Inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. Or Paul, Acts 20, Acts 20, 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, 
Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, (coughs) men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. Both Jesus and Paul warn us about the same thing, and they, they both use this image of wolves. What does a flock need to protect itself against wolves? Sheepdogs. Test the spirits. It's an act of love. Listen carefully. Now, how do you recognize a wolf? What's the test? How do you recognize what a wolf is? The test is in verse 2. Here's the test. It says, This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus is acknowledge Jesus is not from God. The test is what you say about Jesus. Now we've heard something like this before in 1 John. In fact, flip over back with me for just a minute to chapter 2 verse 22. 1 John 2:22. Who is the liar? He says, it is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Uh, Here's one of the main tests in in the letters that John wrote. Um, How how do we distinguish true believers from members of the splinter group that left the church? Uh, They fail all three of the tests that John gives them. They fail the truth test in the identity of Jesus. They fail the obedience test in submitting to his authority. And they fail the love test in loving their brothers and sisters. Here's the truth test again. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Jesus is the God-man. He's the second person of the Trinity in existence from all eternity who took to himself human flesh, a human nature, and the divine and human in him, two natures, are united in one person. Thus it was in Bethlehem and thus it shall ever be. Uh, There was was a movement that emerged soon after this letter was written. It was a movement that was led by a man by the name of Serinthus. Actually, there's an ancient tradition that John once went into the Roman baths in Ephesus and Serinthus was there and John, the old man, ran out and said, Serinthus is here! Serinthus is here! I don't know if that happened. I can't imagine that happening. It's still kind of a funny story. So, Serinthus... Serenthus believed that the divine spirit came on Jesus at the baptism. Dove came down and that's when the divine was united with Jesus. And that the divine spirit left Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. Which is why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John said, no, no. Jesus is the son of God who came in the flesh. My translation here uses the word acknowledge. Every spirit that acknowledges. Your translation might say confess. It's actually the same word that's in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins. Uh, the word means not just to acknowledge its truth, not just to give uh, assent to something, but, but to own something as true, to, to uh, believe it, to recognize its significance. Notice here in 1 John, think about this, in chapter 2, John says, if you will not acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, you do not have any relationship with the Father. That's chapter 2. In chapter 4, he comes along and says, if you don't acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh, you don't have a relationship with the Spirit either. The centrality of Jesus here to our faith. 
Every two years, uh, Ligonier Ministries does a survey of Americans. They call 3,000 Americans uh, to ask them about their own theological convictions. They want to trace the development of this. Um, so they ask uh, Americans to agree or disagree with, this, with statements like this. Here's one of them. Um, let's see. God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake. One statement. Then there's another one. There is one true God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here's another one. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Do you agree or disagree with these statements? Now, the survey targets Americans of all creeds. It doesn't ask people uh, about their religious convictions at the beginning. It asks all, all people. But then at the end of the survey, it asks, oh, tell us about your own faith commitment. And some of the survey takers say that they're evangelicals. You have to be careful in the United States when you see surveys about born-again people because everybody in America is born again. But, uh, so some people were, were saying, I'm an evangelical. Well, what does it mean to be an evangelical? You ha- in order to qualify as an evangelical on this survey, you have to agree with four statements. The Bible's the highest authority for my life, uh, what I believe. It is very important to me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin, and only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. It's a pretty good list, all right? Evangelicals, those four. Now, listen. One of the statements on the survey uh, to which people had to express agreement or disagreement was this. Do you agree or disagree? Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Do you know how many evangelicals agreed with that statement? I hope they misunderstood it. Because 78% of them agreed. That's terrible. 78% of American, uh, American evangelicals agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest created being there's a direct contradiction to what John says here. Uh, in fact, uh, if that's what evangelicals really believe, evangelicals are actually false prophets. Um, <laughs> Jesus is God the Son incarnate. He was not created. Please, 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 if anyone ever calls you and asks you whether you agree with that statement, Jesus, Christ, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, and you say yes, and then they ask you what church you go to, tell them somewhere else, <laughs> all right? When they're at, when you, when, when, I don't care, pick any other church, pick some other denomination, pick some other congregation, don't, don't mention my name at all if you agree with that statement. Actually... You, you could identify yourself as a Jehovah's Witness because that's actually what they believe about Jesus. Here's the test. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, this is not the only test in the Bible. This is a test that's specific for John's readers. I know that because of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12. I think I printed some verses there. Paul's writing into a similar situation. We've got the Spirit of God at work. How do we recognize the Spirit? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So here's the test Paul gives. 
Um, uh, those truly inspired by the Spirit confess the lordship of Jesus, that is, his identity and his authority. Still Christ at the center, but just slightly different. Now, Jesus gave, him a, gave us a little bit of a different sort of test. We read Matthew 7.15. We'll read it again and we'll keep going. Watch out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Now, here we go. By their fruit you will recognize them. So different tests, depending on the context, here the central issue in 1 John is the identity of Jesus. Where does this false teaching come from? He tells us, verse 3, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now already is in the world. Now, we've already talked about the Antichrist. John mentions him again in chapter 2. He's one of the characters that is going to dominate at the end of the age. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. Uh, I want to read how he describes him. I think it will help you here. But look at 2 Thessalonians 2. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, the end that is to come, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. What's he going to be like? He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So the Antichrist himself, I think, is still to be revealed, but his spirit, his teaching, his attitude is already alive and well. He's an imitator. He's a pretend deity. There's nothing original in who he is. He comes, though, in response to the Lord Jesus and in opposition to the Lord Jesus. He's derivative of the one true Savior. Think about this with me. So the apostles are traveling around. They're preaching the gospel. And in response to the movement of the apostles proclaiming the Lord Jesus around the Mediterranean, then false prophets are arising, these false teachers. It's kind of like what happens when you walk through a field on a hot summer day. If you walk through the field on a hot summer day, through a, a tall grass, you know what happens when you do that? All sorts of bugs come up flying up and bouncing up, right? The apostles are walking through the ancient world, and you know what's happening? All these bugs are popping up, these false prophets who are coming to say, Jesus is not God the Son. Listen carefully. There is a necessary and proper vigilance in following Jesus. Not everyone who claims to be spiritual to have a message from God actually is from God. And their deception, it will show up in some way. It will show up in their denial of the deity and humanity of Jesus. It will show up in their denial or the diminishment of his authority as sovereign Lord. Or it will show up in the fruit of their teaching. Listen carefully. There's wolves There's wolves. So for the sake of love, chase them away. Now, John could have stopped here. This could have been sufficient uh, a warning. He could have stopped here. But um, I know some of you are thinking, well, if he could have, you could too, so let's. But John didn't and neither am I. So uh, (coughs) in verses 4 through 6, what he does is he moves on a little bit and he says it's not just the message of the false teachers But he wants you to pay close attention to their audience too. Listen carefully to what they're saying, but watch closely to to watch who is listening to them. Listen carefully, now watch closely. Now verse 4, John here, he wants to give us a little bit of assurance about the, the nature of these false teachers, and he wants to encourage us about their power. Verse 4, 
You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Their power is limited. There is a greater power at work, and in fact, that greater power is at work in you. These false teachers are not as powerful as the Holy Spirit. He says to his readers, you haven't been taken in by them. That's what he means by overcome. You've overcome them. That is, you haven't believed their message. You haven't fallen for their teaching. Why haven't you fallen for their teaching? Because greater is the one who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, I confess, I confess for the sake of my self-esteem, I wish John had written something differently. I wish John had said, you have overcome them because you are clearly smarter than they are. Wouldn't that have been nice? John had said that. Um, Yes, I am, John. I'm glad you acknowledged my superior intelligence. Or, how about, you have overcome them because God is rewarding you for your good choices. Or you've overcome them because you're really wise and insightful. Amazing, actually. You haven't fallen for their teaching because your church is better than every other church in town. You haven't fallen for them because your pastor is a better preacher than those other folks. It's not what he says. It's not about me at all, really. It's it's the one who is in you who is greater than the false teachers. Who's the one who is in you? Likely the Holy Spirit who he's referring to here. It's a good reminder for us. There are in the world teachers who are truly led by the Spirit and there are those who are not led by the Holy Spirit. And no one is saved from those false teachers by their intellectual gifts alone. No one is rescued by false teaching from false teaching by their good behavior or by their sincere intentions or because they tried hard. It is grace, 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 grace. And it's, it's not chiefly arguments either that will win people to the truth. Now, we should make arguments. I think we should make arguments. I'm grateful for people who make arguments. Jeff Mindler is very skilled at this. He's much more skilled than I am, and he's just going to get better and better and better. It's, it, but arguments aren't decisive. D.A. Carson first met the woman who became his wife when she was at Cambridge University. She was at Cambridge University getting a graduate degree, and she was not a Christian. He was there actually doing an evangelistic talk. He was, had been invited in by one of the college ministries to do a talk, and this young woman, uh, D.A. Carson, eventually married her, but she was there, and, and her roommate, Carol, was a Christian and dragged her along to hear D.A. Carson talk. This first time she met her husband was when she heard him Talk And he said, let me assure you, she was not impressed by either the speaker or his message. But he was hanging around Cambridge for a little bit, and, and he was talking to students, and, and he challenged her one day as they were talking. He said, have you ever read this little book? I have it. I'll give it to you if you want to read it. It's called Basic Christianity by John Stott. It's a really good explanation, a real basic introduction to Christianity. She said, well, I've never read it. I don't think I have time. He said, well, there's no time limit. You can... Read it whenever you want, but if, if you'll read it, I'll give it to you. If you don't want to read it, I'll, I won't give it to you, but if you'll take it and read it, I'll, I'll gladly give it to you. All right, t- I'll take it. So she took it. Months went by, and their paths crossed again, and, and he said to her, did you read the book that, that I gave you? What did you think of it? She said, well, I looked up a lot of those references in the Bible. She was so suspicious, skeptical, that she... She took the time to look up all the references that he made to make sure that he was accurately uh, portraying what's actually in the Bible. 
And he said to her, so what did you conclude from the book? And she said, I've come to the conclusion that Christianity is for good people like you and Carol, but it's not for me. He says, I ask you, how can anybody doing graduate education at Cambridge University can read John Stott and conclude that's what Christianity is about? She's not a twit, he said. As soon as she said it, I thought of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man does not receive the things of God, for they are foolishness to him. You have not overcome them, or you have overcome them, because greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here. You're more than welcome. We want you to be here more than we want you to be anywhere else in the whole world. Even if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you even made it, managed to make it on the day after the snowpocalypse. It's amazing, <laughs> right? Half our church members, they're home. Uh, there's something that you should know about us, though, as, as we're here in, here in this room and down here in the fellowship hall. Um, none of us deserve to be Christians. There's, there's not a person in this room who is good enough to be a follower of Jesus. There, there's, there's nothing that in us that would make God look down from heaven and say, ooh, that one, he'd be really good on my team. I really want her. There's nothing in us. Um, we're not Christians because we're smarter than everybody else, or we're, Christ- we're not Christians because we're better than everybody else. We're not Christians because we're cuter than everybody else. In fact, what's true of all of us is that we don't deserve God's love. We actually deserve His wrath. It's because naturally we are all in rebellion against Him. Or to put it another way, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of His glory. We don't measure up to His standards. And so we deserve His rebuke and not His love. But He set His love on us and He sent His Son to die for our sins on the cross. He became our substitute. He's the one who took our our place in bearing God's wrath. You become a Christian by turning to him and trusting him, by recognizing the awful consequences. You you turn to him and you ask for life and for forgiveness. It's how you are reconciled to God. There's no intelligence requirement. There's no age requirement, no age minimum, no age maximum. There's no requirement for good deeds. In fact, if you bring your good deeds to God and show Him and say, see, won't you forgive me? Look at all the good things I've done. The good deeds are actually disqualifying. You can't come with good deeds. They're not as good as you think they are, actually. You will come because God calls you and you answer. There is greater power than the power of these false teachers. Now, We have to remember John's emphasis here in the text. False prophets everywhere, don't be alarmed by them because greater is he that is in you than the one that is in the world. Now, we need to look at verses 5 and 6. We should finish here. Uh, Verses 5 and 6 tell us um, to watch closely to who's listening. Verse 5, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. No, John uses the word world six times in this passage, what, three times in that verse. This system that is opposed to God, this atmosphere, this mindset that is opposed to God. And notice the connection between the false teachers and the world. They get their message from the world and they trumpet back to the world their message and so the world is happy to hear it. That's how cable news works, right? 
If you're a liberal, you listen to MSNBC so it can tell you liberal sort of things and then you can be affirmed and happy in your liberalness. And if you're conservative, you listen to Fox News so you can be told conservative things and be affirmed in your conservativeness. Right? The message comes from the world and the world listens to it. No wonder the message is popular. This may not be the best illustration for a group of Baptists, for a group of Baptists but this is like being at a party and your jam comes on. Right? So there you are, the party, and your music comes on, right? Okay? And what happens when your jam comes on? You've got to get up and you've got to move. I'm a Baptist. So, <laughs> right? It's your jam. They get their message from the world and the world dances to it. John says, look around and see who's dancing to this song that's being played. Watch. Watch closely. Do you know where this is, this is hitting us right now? Absolutely, clearly, it, it's happening in, in the, the sexual revolution. I don't know if you uh, saw any of the news headlines about this, but uh, this week it was a terrible scandal, a terrible scandal. Uh, Karen Pence, the wife of the vice president, Mike Pence, is teaching now at a Christian school, and you're not going to believe it, but the Christian school actually believes Christian things. It's terrible. It's a terrible scandal. Uh, specifically the thing that the Christian school that she's teaching at now, she taught at this school uh, 10 years ago when her husband was in Congress, Emmanuel Baptist School in Springfield, Virginia. She taught there 10 years ago, and she just started again part-time teaching art. And you know what? It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. These Christians have the audacity to believe what Christians have believed for 2,000 years about sexual matters. So they believe marriage is between one man and one woman. Uh, you have to sign something to voluntarily go to this school. You have to sign something that says that you're not actively participating in a gay, lesbian, or transgender lifestyle. Christians behaving like Christians. It's a scandal. It's terrible. I can't believe it. Right? That's what all the headlines said. She has the audacity to teach at a school like this. Get their message from the world, trumpet their message back to the world, and it sounds great. It's my jam. Right? Now, verse 6 could come across as a little arrogant. He's saying the same thing that he said in verse 5, just from the opposite standpoint. You, it, you really get arrogant if you read it, right? We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. He's, he's not being arrogant. Who's the we here? I think the we he's talking about is the apostles. The apostles are preaching the apostolic message. Uh, and it's, it's never, though, bound up just with the apostles. It's the message that they preach. I know that from Galatians 1, because in Galatians 1, verse 8, uh, Paul says, But even if we, one of the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel to you other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. It's the message, it's the message, it's the message. Right? Look around, look around, watch closely. Who's listening? Who's listening to these folks, these teachers? Who are they who, who are watch, uh, listening to them? Watch closely. The audience will help you discern. Scotland, Scotland Yard, a couple of years ago, conducted an art show. They went and found the best forgeries of art that they could, and they put it on display for art dealers in London. 
They did it because they wanted to show these art dealers how easy it is for forgeries to be made. Uh, there's estimates that the art market today, I don't participate in the art market unless it's a poster you can buy at Target, but uh, the, uh, um, the art market today, 40%, they think, of the art that's on sale is actually forgeries. So they got all these art dealers together to show them the quality of these forgeries. And, and you can't trust the paperwork because the paperwork can be forged too. There was someone in there, her name was Fiona Ford, and uh, she's an antiques dealer in London, and she said that the skill on display in these forgeries was terrifying. If every dealer, she said, saw this exhibition, it would further impress on them how careful they have to be. It's terrifying to see the fakes. There are false teachers in the world. Don't be terrified of them. You don't need to be terrified of them. But don't be gullible either. Brothers and sisters, Listen carefully and watch closely. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we are thankful to you for this warning uh, in, the, in the letter that John wrote about false teachers. Lord, um, some of them are easy to spot. Some of them we can... We can we can spend seconds on their television shows and we just know. Or we can flip through their books for just a second and, and know. Some of them, they're, it's difficult. So I pray, you who gave us the Spirit, who is greater than all these false teachers and all these false spirits inspired by the Antichrist, I pray that, that you would, by your Spirit, give us discernment and wisdom Lord, protect our church from wolves. The Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, they both warned us about savage wolves that would come. Give us insight and give us help. Protect us by our discernment, by our careful listening and close watching. Help us to do that, that we might honor the Son, our great Savior, who is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in his name that we pray these things together saying, Amen.